you are guests with us, I, I hope if you haven't seen already, we are a church that values friendship and Christ-centered relationships. And uh, so when we, we take a break and you hear this noise, it's, it's not without purpose. Certainly part of it is to be able to dismiss the children, but also to have a chance to say hi and greet one another. So it's great to hear that sound, even though sometimes it's hard to corral us back in. I do know it's your heart to hear from God, to hear from His Word. That's, that's why we exist. That's how we exist. The, the life of God is in us, working in us and amongst us and through us. And His life comes indeed in the power of the Holy Spirit, but through the Word. The Word gives life. So, so it's important to us to, to gather together, to hear His Word, to receive the life that comes from Him through His Word to be transformed, to be encouraged, to be recommissioned to, to go out this week and walk with Him, with one another, and serve Him and His purposes. So as we anticipate Him speaking to us this morning through Acts chapter 2, let's go before Him and ask Him to do just that. We don't ever want to take it for granted. We need to hear Him speak to us. We live by His Word, so let's ask Him to speak. Lord, we thank You this morning that your intention towards us is to be gracious in Christ, that you have determined from your character and according to your promises to be gracious to us. You sent your Son to die for us, and you set a time when by your grace and your Spirit we would respond to you. And now, Lord, you are for us in Christ. We thank you, Lord. And, Lord, your mercy is great for those here who may not know you as well. Lord, you are a God of compassion. Your desire is that each and every one would come to you and know the life that you bring. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you speak to us through your word. Your word is living and active and it changes lives. And we thank you and we ask you, God, to come and be with us, to minister to us through your word, to bring life, open up eyes, and glorify your name. Oh Lord, this is all far beyond any of us, certainly far beyond me. Lord, I, I'm the one that you've called to, to serve in preaching, but Lord, I, I need you. Thank you, Lord. I thank you, Jesus, for your blood and righteousness and Holy Spirit for your presence here. So come and do your work. Magnify your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. We'll be in Acts chapter 2 today, verses 1 to 21. We've been following along uh, in this series. We've only... Had two messages. They were actually online if you'd like to access them to catch up with us. But here we are in chapter 2. The early church is meeting and waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Christ has already ascended. They are meeting together, praying with about 120 or so, all together with the 12 apostles. They are leading them. And it says in chapter 2, verse 1, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus in Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, 
Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. But these men are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts chapter 2, 1-21. This story in Acts is really one of the most fantastic stories in the whole Bible. Can you imagine what this event was like? Sometimes we, we read through this and we become familiar with this event, this story, and we can take for granted just how fantastic it was. Can you imagine what it must have been like to have been there? There's about 120 people in this upper room, 120 men and women gathered in this large upper room. That's most likely this very same upper room where Jesus celebrated the Passover. Most likely the same upper room where the disciples gathered after Jesus had been crucified. The same upper room where Jesus appeared to them, resurrected. And the same upper room in which they had been meeting for the past 50 or so days since Jesus' resurrection. And they're gathered that day on Pentecost, the 50th day. 50 days after the start of Passover, it was a feast, a festival uh, for the first harvest. And they were there gathered in that room praying. Nothing too spectacular necessarily about that, but what happened next is where it gets fantastic. Just imagine yourself in this large upper room, kind of crammed in there perhaps with all 120, and there's a sound like a mighty rushing wind. That's like a tornado-like sound. And it's not just a sound that's outside the room. It's actually inside the room. Uh, has anyone heard a tornado-like sound ever here? Anyone been around a tornado or in a hurricane? Some of us. closest thing I ever came to was that windstorm we had last March, uh, where this past March, where it was, I think, what, peaked around 70 miles per hour. And, it, it, and I, I, actually, we were inside for most of it. But it sounded like a freight train was riding through our trees at like 100 miles per hour. We actually lost two large trees that took down about six other trees. Uh, it was loud. And that's the sort of sound that's going on as they're gathered in this room. It's a loud rushing wind, a tornado-like sound. But it's not on the outside, it's on the inside. It fills the house where they are. I'm sure it was overwhelming and even terrifying, this large Sound, this tornado-like sound. And then it, it didn't stop just with that. There, there were tongues of fire, that, that, that tongues of what looked like fire that separated and, and, and came on each one. And then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And spontaneously started praising God. But their praise of God was in multiple languages. I think 15 or so perhaps are listed. It probably was more than that. Multiple languages. They start praising God in languages they did not know. Languages they had not learned ahead of time, most likely. They were Galileans. They only knew like three or four languages. Now for us, we only know like one language, and that, that day... In most of the world, they know multiple languages. But they did not know 15 languages. They were just common people who, who would know the languages in their area, and that's it. And yet they are praising God. They are filled with the Spirit, and they are spontaneously, as a result of this experience, praising God in all these languages. And, and probably what happened next was that as they experienced this powerful 
praise, uh, this powerful experience of God and are praising God in multiple languages, they pour out of the room and go to the temple, which was nearby. Because it says that a large crowd heard the noise. Now, that wasn't the, I don't believe that it was the noise of the rushing wind they heard. Uh, because the question of the large crowd wasn't, what's this loud wind sound? The question of the large crowd is, what is going on? I'm hearing them praise God in my language. And these guys are Galileans. So they were most likely in the temple area. Because it also says later on in the story that 3,000 were added to the number that day. And 3,000 people could not fit inside that large upper room. The only place in Jerusalem where you could have 3,000 people who would be accessible to, to a sound like that was the temple grounds. So they poured out into the temple grounds, and there's this, this joyous, loud, multilingual chorus of praise to God from the perhaps even as many as 120. Praising God. What, what a sight. What a sight. It's interesting that in the storyline, Luke five times reports the people, their response, as being perplexed. Again and again, he uses the word bewildered, in our English translation, bewildered, amazed, astonished, perplexed. Five times. I don't think that's by accident. Certainly it is what happened. But Luke includes it, I think, to, to prompt us to wonder what was going on ourselves. To point to the reality often that when God works in power, we can be perplexed. We can wonder, what is going on? And one thing I want to do this morning as we look at this familiar story is I want us not just to say, yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, this means this. But I want us to, to be perplexed in a sense and say, what does this mean? Just like the people who first witnessed it said. What does this mean? What is going on? Is there some aspect of this story that I have missed? What does it mean? What does it mean for me today? What does it mean for King of Grace Church? What does it mean for believers in, in the Haverhill area in 2010? But to bring answers there as well. Trusting that as we go through this, my prayer has been that we would have answers. We would understand what's going on. And more than just informing ourselves, that the, tr uh, the truth here would transform us and affect us and lead us in the ways of God. So I want to talk about what it means and, and how the Word teaches us what it means. There's... Uh, I basically want, I'll say up front what I think it means, and we'll kind of dig into each one of these things. Pentecost, this, this occurrence here in Acts 2, the, the day of Pentecost, the initial and, and unique, in many ways, occurrence of Pentecost, is about the pouring out of the Spirit. It's about the pouring out of the Spirit. The pouring out of the Spirit on God's people, as promised, for power, for His people. It's the pouring out of the Spirit as promised. It's the pouring out of the Spirit for power. It's the pouring out of the Spirit for His people. So hopefully that helps you remember. Three points. Promise, power, and people. So first, it's the pouring out of the Spirit as promised. When the people ask what's going on, they're perplexed. They ask what's going on. Some of them mock. They say, well, these guys are drunk. Peter steps forward. And he offers an explanation for what's going on. He gives the meaning. The people are perplexed, and he brings the meaning to them. This is what it means, and he begins to cite Joel. I think in Peter's mind there, were, there was probably a lot going on in his understanding of, of what that meant, what this occurrence meant. He goes to Joel as a key text, but not the only text. First, actually, he, he responds to the mocking, which is, is interesting. It's somewhat humorous, actually. It seems that that he, they say, these guys are drunk, and Peter says, well, guys, it's only 9 in the morning. And, and then that's like, that works. There's no more discussion on that one. He just moves on. He convinces them on that one. Okay, it's 9 in the morning. Forget that. I'm not, I'm not sure why that's there, but it's somewhat humorous. He moves on, and he points to the Bible. He points to the Word of God as the meaning, the way to understand it. And I'm sure Peter had in mind the entire Bible. And we've learned as a church, hopefully, that when 
New Testament authors, when New Testament figures quote the Old Testament, they're not proof texting. They're not just saying, okay, this thing happened. Let me just kind of find a verse somewhere in the Old Testament to kind of, you know, a couple of verse, a couple of words here just to plug on to make it feel good to us. Now, when these guys use the Old Testament, they're thinking of the whole context. They're thinking of that verse and the whole section that verse comes from. And, and often in the New Testament, it looks like uh, only a portion of things are cited when they might have actually read more or said more, and certainly they implied more. So Peter, I'm sure, has all this in mind. that The Old Testament is full of promises, full of understanding about the Holy Spirit. You can do an exhaustive study in the Old Testament about the Holy Spirit. We see it through the Old Testament. We, we see in the very beginning, and, and, and I won't do a whole exhaustive study of the Spirit in the Old Testament, by the way, in case you're worrying, um, but you, quickly going, we see it right in the beginning. The Spirit's hovering over the water. We see uh, God creates man, puts him in the garden, and he does that to put the man over his creation so that the man would walk, the man and the woman would walk and, with God and image him to the world, to, to be sub-kings and queen, in a sense, over creation. And we, we know from the text that uh, later on it, uh, that, that God walked with Adam in the cool of the day, and most likely by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit did. We, we see it in other places, the Holy Spirit throughout the Bible. We see, uh, we see later on when Moses, Moses is anointed by God and filled with the Spirit, and he gets overwhelmed with his task. He has too much to do. He's not delegating very well. And so his father-in-law brings advice, and they end up appointing 70 elders to help him. You guys know that story? And God tells him to, to, I think he prays, I can't remember, I think he prays for the 70 elders, and they're filled with the Spirit. They're filled with the Holy Spirit to be empowered to be leaders over Israel. And there's even some of them that weren't able to make that, that meeting. And, and, and isn't this kind of a cool promise, I think, that, that they're not there, but they still get filled with the Spirit. They're outside the camp. And it's interesting when Joshua, his aide, says, He's jealous for Moses, and he wants, he wants to do something. These guys are, are getting filled without you praying for them directly, Moses. We've got to stop them. And Moses, what does Moses say? Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets. That the Lord would put His Spirit on them. Moses' heart is, Joshua, you've got the wrong idea. Oh, that all of God's people would be filled with the Spirit and speak God's truth. That is Moses' heart. That's God's heart. And we see that through the Old Testament. We see God, the Spirit, doing many things, empowering His people. Elijah, Ezekiel, elsewhere, the judges, the leaders. David himself is full of the Spirit his entire life. And when he really blows it and commits adultery and murders someone, very serious crimes and sins that deserve the death penalty, his chief concern in what he did is breaking fellowship, disobeying God, and his, his request is, do not take your spirit from me. David knows the blessing of the power and presence of God in his life through the Spirit. And his heart cries, God, please forgive me for all my faults. I repent. I look to you. Please don't take your spirit from me. Later on, when the people rebel, God continually calls them to repent and promises to work restoration. And in Ezekiel 36, He makes this wonderful, amazing promise. He says to His people, I will put My Spirit within you. I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and be careful to obey My rules. So we see this throughout the Old Testament. The Spirit of God working in God's people. The promise of God to do this in, a, in, in an extent, a breadth and a depth that they had never experienced. But we see hints of it. We see the promise. We see some experience. The Old Testament teaches us that the Spirit of God is given so that we might experience the presence and the power of God. That we might experience the presence and the power of God to be the people of God, to fill out, to accomplish His purposes. 
the presence and the power of God to be His people and fulfill His purposes. That has been God's heart for His people all along, from the very beginning through the Old Testament up to Acts chapter 2. So there's a context. I'm sure Peter is aware of this. The Jewish people that were there were aware of this. But then Peter goes to Joel. And Joel, in a very succinct and powerful way, encapsulates this promise and all that it means. Now Joel was a prophet who who lived probably after the exile. And he prophesied when there was a devastating locust invasion. They were a largely agricultural people. And uh, there was some sort of locust invasion. The locusts came in and they basically ate everything. Everything got eaten. There was no more crop pretty much no more crop left. It was devastating. And in that context, Joel prophesied. And part of what goes on in Joel is, is he, he points forward. God uses him to point forward to a, another day even more cataclysmic than the day of the locust invasion with even more serious implications for God's people. And he speaks of a day where, uh, called uh, the day of the Lord. The, the day of of the Lord, the final day of the Lord, when he, when God would bring judgment to the earth. And Joel speaks of that. He speaks of that day of the Lord when he would bring judgment to the earth. And, and, and while he does that, God calls his people to put their trust in him. And God makes a promise to his, his people saying, as you look to me, I will rescue you from that day. You will be safe. And not only will you be safe, you will be blessed. You will, be, you will prosper, and I will pour out my Spirit on you. And that's where Joel 2 comes in, the, one that, the verse that Peter quotes. So Peter has this in mind, I believe, as he's sharing this, that, that the day of the Lord is coming, and this is the promise. God promises to pour out His Spirit on His people that trust in Him, that they might be rescued from that final day, that they might be rescued from that judgment. And, and next week we'll hit more on that, the second part of the sermon where he gets into that and the implications of that, that God would, would rescue, that, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But he explains this experience of the Spirit in light of this promise as the fulfillment of this. It's an amazing statement that Peter makes here. It's amazing. It's, it's an audacious claim here in this section and this, this passage, an audacious claim. Peter is saying nothing less than that this occurrence that you're seeing here, what has just gone on, this pouring out of the Spirit, this, this speaking in other languages, is the very fulfillment of Joel 2 and the very fulfillment of all that God has promised in the Old Testament regarding the giving of the Spirit. It's an audacious claim. And, and, and with it is this implication that the final days are here right now. Because Joel 2 is a promise for the final day. It's a promise for the final days. It's a promise that God would give His Spirit in the final days, that His people would be filled with the Spirit, that they would prophesy, they would speak the words of God. They would speak the words of God, and, and, and all of God's people would do this. Men and women, young and old, high and low, all and every type of people, all those that belong to the Lord would receive the Spirit and speak His Word. And that would happen in the final day. The final day. So, so Peter is saying some really amazing things right here. And it's not just for the sake of that 3,000 that day that this is said here. It's for the sake of the three billion or whatever believers that would come in time that we might understand that this is the same for us. We live in the final days. And in God's plans, He is working towards that final day of judgment where He will finish everything. Where He will bring judgment. And and judgment in Scripture is is bigger than we may think of it being. It's both to deal with the evil and the good. to, To to punish evil and to reward good and to wrap everything up, to deal with all injustices and create a final solution, a glorious and good solution on that day. 
That day is coming, and so he's given his spirit to his people to be his witnesses, prepare to bring him glory, to prepare for that day, and to witness to the world that there might be many, many more who would be prepared for that day as well. Peter is saying all that to the people on that day, as promised. The Spirit has been given out. The power to be His witnesses has been given for His people to, to witness to Him in word and deed to prepare for that final day. We, we don't want to miss that. And we want that truth. We need that truth to shape our lives. That's a key truth. There are a lot of other truths or a lot of half-truths or non-truths competing for how we interpret our lives, for how we interpret what life's about for us. And there's some truths that are, are they're truths, they're good things, but they're perhaps out of place. We can take things that are good things and, and, and we, can, we can exalt them to a more prominent place than they should have. Jobs career, home, comfort. All those things have their place, but we can, we can make those the key truths that interpret our lives, that determine our lives, that lead us in life. And Acts seeks to correct us. Not saying don't care about your job, don't care about your family or comfort, but to understand that we are the people of God empowered to be witnesses in preparation for the final day. That's what life's about. That's the truth of Acts for us. We are the people of God empowered by the Spirit to be His witnesses, to be like Him, to image Him individually and corporately, and to tell others about Him in power, to prepare for that final day that we and they, all who would respond, all who call upon the name of the Lord, may be prepared for that final day. That's what life's about. Everything else, and certainly that truth is with God at the center, everything else falls under that in line with that. Could you imagine if you were able to be transported back to the year 1250? Probably thinking, okay, 1250, what does 1250 have to do with anything? Around the year 1400, I think it's 1400, there was a terrible plague that went through the whole world. Anyone know the name of the plague? Black Plague, Bubonic Plague, and about a third of the world died by that plague. A third of Asia and Europe died from that plague. It was a horrible plague. And they didn't really know what was going on. They didn't understand the things that we know now, thank God, about germs and so forth. And it turns out that the, the plague was, a, was it a virus or a bacteria? I can't remember. Virus? Bacteria. My daughter studies the plague, so... It was a bacteria carried on a tick, carried on a, on a rat that carried on a boat that went everywhere. Not just one rat, many rats, many ticks, many pieces of bacteria. And it, and it affected the whole world. But imagine if you could somehow have lived and been transported back to 1250, and you are transported back knowing what you know now about what's coming, about this bubonic plague that's going to come, that a third of the world is going to be wiped out. And you have the knowledge... You are empowered by the knowledge of what it takes to deal with that plague. You know that things like quarantine and hygiene and rat control and other things would make all the difference. And you've got 150 years. Now, you're not going to live that long. You only have your lifetime. But you've got enough time to do something about it. What would you do? How would you live? Would you just say, hey, 1250, this is great. I'm in 1250 and I can, I can, I don't know, I can take it easy and find a castle to live in. You know, become a knight or a princess and, and just have a romantic time here in 1250. I can, I can, you know, I can write Dante's Inferno before Dante does. I can do all this stuff. Oh, you know, I could bet on stuff. I know what's going to happen. I can do the betting. I can make myself rich. Would you do that? No, you would do something. You would do something. I hope you would do something to deal with what was coming. You maybe would educate people. You would do something to try to prevent this catastrophe from coming. You would, would be empowered to do something. You would do something. That's the same for us now. There's a day coming when everyone will stand before God and be accountable to Him. And, and that's good. 
because he's good. But it's bad for me because I know I've transgressed his law. I know that I knowingly, knowing God is good, having seen his goodness in creation and all the blessings around me, I know I have willfully and consistently rebelled against him. So that day is not a good day for me to be judged for my sin. The scripture teaches us the wages of sin is death. It means that God on that day will say in perfect justice and goodness, away from me. I never knew you. And on that day, apart from some intervention, we will be banished. Worse than bubonic plague, worse than anything, to be banished from all goodness and all greatness. That's what hell's about. But Christ has come. The cure is here. It's happened. He died for sinners. He rose again. There's the full cure. And the Spirit is given to us to be His witnesses, to be empowered when we speak, to be changed in how we live individually and corporately. We have the power to do something about what's coming, to bring God glory, to affect lives, to see lives changed, so that on that day we will have a reward for being faithful by His grace and there will be that much of that reward will be the people that are there with us, forgiven for their sins, having lived fruitful lives for Him, entering into everlasting bliss and glory in the new heaven and the new earth. That's what's going on in Acts 2. That's what's happening here with the Spirit being given. It's the empowerment by the Spirit for the people of God to be witnesses. As promised. The Spirit is poured out in power as well. It's power. Power with a purpose. So it's as promised, it's poured out in power. The power of God comes from the presence of God. And that's important as well to recognize that the Spirit of God is God Himself. The Spirit of God is not some sort of force that God sends. It's not a force like, like Star Wars. The force be with you. You receive some special force and you learn to live in the force. It's not a force. It's a person. God, the Holy Spirit. It is He, the Holy Spirit. He is God. To experience the power of God is to experience the presence of God Himself. God, the Holy Spirit, is poured out on His people in Acts chapter 2 and poured out for His people ever since. It is God Himself, the third person of the Trinity. And we must never diminish this truth must never diminish this truth. Oh, I have so much to learn about the third person of the Trinity. We have so much to learn about the third person of the Trinity. I, as I prepared this week, just one of the thoughts that occurred to me is just how we mistreat the Holy Spirit. We treat the Spirit like He's a force. Like He's impersonal. Like it's we can take Him or leave Him on our own terms. Yeah, I need some of that power right now. I want to do something. No, I don't want that power right now. I want to do this. And the Holy Spirit is God. Holy God. He's the Holy Spirit. He's holy. He's God. Now, when we see God in Scripture, do we see Him in some way that we can just kind of write Him off? Yeah, yeah, He's, he's not important. No, the God of Scripture is a holy God. He's an infinite God. He's the God where when the seraphim, these mighty, amazing angel things are before Him, and these seraphim themselves are enough to terrorize us. In Scripture, whenever there's a contact of an angel, just regular angels with people, people don't, don't feel all warm and fuzzy. What do they do in Scripture? They shake. They, they, they faint. They are terrified. Almost always angels, their first words are what? Be not afraid. Do not fear. Right? Because they're fearful. Well, these are seraphim. They're, they're glorious angels. And they're in the presence of God. And what do they say day and night? And they do it because they're compelled to do it because they see His glory and they cannot look at His glory. And they say day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And they worship Him with their whole hearts. And, there's, and it's the picture in Isaiah, it's thunder in the temple. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God, the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy One amongst us. Infinitely glorious. The One the angels fear. So we must revere and treasure 
presence of the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost. We must revere and treasure the presence of the Holy Spirit and to live our lives in a way relying on His presence and power and seeking it, revering Him and saying, Lord, You're the Lord. What do You want to do in my life today? Lead me. I'm Yours. There is to be a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. The power that He gives is the power of His presence and has power to witness to Jesus Christ. The Spirit empowers us to witness to Jesus Christ. We're learning about this as we go through Acts. This would be a major theme of Acts, that the Spirit is given to empower God's people to be His witnesses in character and in power, in deed and in word, all pointing ultimately to the reality of the Gospel, the reality of Jesus Christ, who died for sin, who paid for our sins so we could be clean, that we could be made holy. He rose again for new life. This reality, we are, we are empowered by the Spirit to point to this reality in character and in power, in deeds and in words, individually and corporately together. To point to Him. To demonstrate the reality of Jesus Christ through the power of changed lives, of a unified, loving people. People who experience and perform supernatural miracles as God enables, all pointing to the Lord. We are empowered to be His witnesses. And this power is a supernatural power. Sometimes we are perplexed by spirits like they were on that day. We are perplexed by the spirits because of this aspect. The Spirit of God is supernatural. Now, it isn't that He's not natural. He's God overall, over the natural, but He's also supernatural. He moves in ways beyond what's normal, beyond what we think. And sometimes I think we compromise our theology of the Spirit because we don't like this aspect. We don't like supernatural stuff. We like it nice and neat and in order. And we try to domesticate the Holy Spirit, if that were possible, to somehow make Him orderly, to make Him fit in our lives. We don't like to be disturbed from our natural, normal lives. We're like the hobbits from The Lord of the Rings. How many people have read or seen the movie? Just wondering if I should ditch this illustration. Okay, good. I can use this one. The hobbits in the Lord of the Rings and the Spirit of God is like Gandalf. You guys know what the hobbits, what they like? They like just quiet lives. Just want to live in their little village, farm, you know, and, and have a good time. And Gandalf arrives on the scene. And what does he do? He stirs things up. He, he first in the early part, uh, in the, the hobbit, he, he gets Bilbo on this mission that is very unhobbit-like. And then later on with Frodo, he comes in and he mixes things up. And, the, and most of the hobbits are like, this is, this is terrible. This isn't orderly. Yet it's good, we know in the storyline. How much more the good that the Spirit does. The Spirit of God wants to work in our lives and He must have lordship over what and how He does things. And that's part of the problem sometimes. Is we, want, we want lordship over what happens. Now don't get me wrong. And, and if you are a guest here, don't be afraid because, because the Spirit of God is not a spirit of chaos. The Spirit of God is God the Holy Spirit and always, always, always acts according to His character and His Word. So we are going to discern what is and isn't the Spirit according to that. We're not going to just do wild, crazy things because they're wild and crazy and therefore they must be of the Spirit. That's not my point at all. It's the other way around. We must not say it must be orderly done this way. Just think about what we just read in Acts chapter 2. If you wanted a plan and program to reach the Jewish people who were assembled on that day for Pentecost, what would you do? Would you decide that you're going to pour out the power of the Spirit with this crazy wind loud noise thing, and then pieces of fire would go on each head, and then they would start speaking languages they had never learned. And then not only that, not only would they speak it in the room, but they would go out of the room to the temple grounds in front of everybody and start praising God in this, this, this chorus of multilingual languages. Yeah, that makes sense. Multilingual chorus, praising God, 
Would you do that? Would, would that be your plan for the day of Pentecost, to reach 3,000 people? It wouldn't be my plan. It, that was wild. But it was God's plan. And when we say yes to Jesus, we say yes to the Holy Spirit. And we say yes to whatever He wants. Now, what happened on that day had purpose. It wasn't chaotic. They might not have understood it. It made lots of sense, actually. If you read the Old Testament, God all, often would represent Himself in wind. So the rushing wind was part of God representing them. This is me on the scene in power. God often is represented and it appears amidst fire. Moses, the burning bush, elsewhere. The fire comes to rest on each head saying, the Lord is with you. And also it looks like that that day was a reversal of the, of the Tower of Babel. On the day of the Tower of Babel, what happened? The people of the world had gathered together. They had united together to oppose God and promote their own purpose. They were united together to oppose God and promote their own purpose and building this great monument to themselves and monument to their own glory, reaching God in their own terms. And God scattered them by giving them multiple languages where they could not unite anymore. Pentecost comes. God works in His people a new united purpose in Christ. And He takes people from all nations and He unites them around Christ. And so now, in Christ, there's a new union together of God's people for one purpose, for not the glory of man, but the glory of God. And so, multiple languages, it doesn't matter. There's unity around the purposes of God. So, it makes sense what went on that day. In the wind, and in the fire, and in the languages. It wasn't without purpose. But it wasn't neat and orderly. It was on God's terms. God's way. When we come to the Lord, we need to face that inescapable reality that the ministry of the Spirit will include supernatural things that He does. And we must let Him work and not hinder Him. Yes, indeed, we are to discern what is of God, what isn't, but we are not to hinder it. But even more than that, we are more than just to not hinder it. We are to seek to promote it. We are to submit to Him as He works. Yes, we're to use our understanding of the Scripture and and discern, but we are not to hinder. We are even to seek and submit to Him and say, Lord, I'm not going to put a box around what you can and can't do. Yes, I know the box is the Scripture and your character. I assume that. But beyond that, I'm not going to put a box around what you can and can't do. Do what you want in my life. Take me out of my comfort zone. Give me a gift that I don't like. If it pleases you, if it can serve you, let me do what you want. You are Lord. And Acts teaches us to embrace all that He has for us. That we might be His witnesses. We might be people of His presence and power. And therefore be His witnesses. So determine to put aside your fears as we go through Acts and pursue ministry of the Spirit. As we learn to do that, there's no telling what God will do in and through us. Some years ago, I was with a, at a conference, and I've told this story before, I think some of you may know it. I was at a conference, I used to be a research, research engineer, I was at a conference in San Diego, one of the benefits, sometimes you got to go to nice places for nice conferences. And I, my roommate at the conference was a guy named, I think it was Xi. Uh, he was from mainland China. And he had grow, grown up under communism. They had actually taught him in school why not to believe in God. And it was fascinating talking to him about that. They were taught why not to believe in God. One of the things he, he said to me was they were taught that when Einstein became a, a, a theist, or Einstein was really a deist, he believed in, it, in God, uh, but just a general, general God. But when he became a, a theist, his uh, scientific work declined, which is bogus. If you, if you do the research, you can look later. There's no correlation. But they were taught that. They were aggressively taught not to believe in God. So I got to talk with G about, about the Lord, and I shared my testimony and, and, uh, and just befriended him. And you know, we, we went to the beach together and things like that. And one evening I came back, and he was uh, in the room, and we had separate rooms in the suite. And he was in his room. The door was open, and there were all these medicine bottles on the table in the suite. And they were, I think, open and different things. And, and he was in there lying down. And, and I believe he had told me that he had a very serious back problem. Uh, I don't know, herniated disc, things like that. 
And, uh, and I came in, and I felt like God said, I, I want you to pray for him. And I actually had, I was in a bad mood. Uh, okay, I was in a sinful mood, and, um, and I just, just didn't want to pray for him, and I don't know what I was thinking, but I felt like God said, do it, and I said, okay, I'm going to do it. And, and I went in, and I talked to G, and I said, you know, find out what was going on, and, and, uh, and, I, and I was just asking God what to do, and felt like I needed to pray. So I said, G, you know, I, we've been talking, and, and, um, and the Bible teaches us uh, that God heals, and he loves to show that he's real to people by doing things like healing. And, and so I would like to pray for you that God would heal your back so you'd know he's God and you'd feel better. Uh, and would that be okay? And he said, sure. And so I prayed for him. And nothing, you know, I didn't do anything special. I just put my hand on him and prayed for God to heal him, that God would show himself. And afterwards I said, you know, gee, uh, you know, did you experience anything? How do you feel? And he said, oh, still kind of the same, but thanks for praying for me. And we went to bed. The next day uh, I went to a seminar, and I was at a coffee break standing around with a lot of my colleagues, and, and um, I don't think any of them were believers. And G comes up right in the middle of the group, right up in the middle of it, and he goes, Paul, Paul, and with, with his Chinese English accent, Paul, Paul, my back, it's all better. And he just yelled out in front of everybody that, that he was all better. And, it, and, uh, and that was wonderful. God worked to heal his back, to touch him, and, uh, and to draw him to Christ. Now, he didn't come to Christ, I don't think, at that moment. Uh, we had a dialogue. It turned out I think his wife was a believer, and we, we continued to exchange emails for a while. My trust is that on that final day, I get to see G again and, and recognize how good God was to work. When we trust the Spirit, there will be opportunities like that. But I also don't want us to think that that's all that it's about, because part of the witness is who we are. And, and, I, and just this past week, I heard a story, and I won't name names, um, I don't think people would mind, but I won't name names. In our church, there's someone right now who knows Jesus, who came to Jesus within the past six months or so. And part of what happened was, that got that going, was that someone in this church invited that person over for dinner and just expressed love and hospitality. And that was the Holy Spirit, giving people a heart like God has, to invite someone over to have dinner just to hang out. And that impressed that person, and that was part of what started that person on a journey of seeking the Lord as the Lord drew him. And that, that person ended up coming to Christ, whether it's healing or hospitality. That's part of what it means to walk in the power of the Spirit. God has much to do in us, much good to accomplish, if the band could come up as we close. He wants to give us power to be His witnesses as promised. And He wants it for all of God's people. This is not just for the apostles and the 120 on that day, though that was a unique initiatory experience. It is an experience for every believer. And, and Peter says at the end of the message, that, he, that we'll talk about this next week, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he says to the whole crowd, guys, this isn't just for us. This is for all of you as you repent and believe in Jesus for forgiveness. You will receive the gift of the Spirit. And then he says, for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's for all, anybody whom the Lord would call. So if you are here and you're not yet a believer, we're so glad you're here and we want to be a blessing and good friends to you. But this calls for you to repent and believe in Christ. Receive the forgiveness He has and receive the gift of the Spirit, of the power and the presence of God to, to be like Him and to live a new life in Him. It's for you. And if you've come to Christ already, the Spirit has already been poured out on you in your life. And you have full access to all of His power and presence for His purposes. Do you Take advantage of that access. Because this promise is for you too. He has been poured out. That's like water being poured out. The, the, the word is used often for water spilling out or being poured out. And there's many synonyms in Scripture used. There's filling, there's coming upon, there's baptized. All these other, other words are really all synonyms for this pouring out 
that is spoken of in Joel. And that pouring out is for you as a believer. And we're not meant to live life as a believer without relying on that pouring out day after day, moment after moment. So the promise is for you too. For all who belong to Christ. Do you want more? You want to be His witnesses? You want to experience His presence and power? You want to be part of His purposes? Do you feel the call of God working in you to continue what started in the book here in New England, here in Haverhill? He's still active. This is the beginning. The work's still going on. The day has not come yet. And and what's going on here and in and through King of Grace and other churches in this area is part of God doing what He was doing here. Do you hear the call of God to be part of that? Then look for the power of the Spirit. Pray, expect, wait, and act in faith that He's with you and He'll meet you. We will begin to see, continue to see the Lord do great and wonderful things like we see in the book of Acts for His glory. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord, for Your Word and these precious truths, this wonderful passage. And Lord, I ask You to forgive me and forgive us for ways that we have resisted or hindered or been unwilling to walk in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Lord, for many reasons, fear, selfishness, pride, not knowing, Lord, many reasons we have not done that. Please forgive us, God. Oh, Lord, we want to be Your people. We want to be witnesses. We want, we want people to see You when they look at this church, to see You. When they look at our lives, to see You. We want to love others in Your name. We want to speak to others. We want to be Your people. We want to live in light of that final day. Help us to have Your priorities. And Lord, grant us from your Holy Spirit to do these things. Come Holy Spirit, may we be a people who thirst eagerly after you.